0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special pop up podcast episode. Uh, that's what I'm calling it. Uh, with Hamish, I'm one of the founders of Substack, uh, and Hamish is my name. And Judd Legum, who is the publisher of Popular Information and the former editor in chief of Think Progress, and a tweeter extraordinaire with 350,000 followers, something like that. He lives in Washington, D.C., where he joins me on the line. Hello, Judd. How are you?
1: Good. Wow. What an intro. I feel like we should just leave
0: it there. I don't know how I'm going to top it. That is a pretty good podcast episode in its own right. Yes, I think we should consider just yeah quitting while we're ahead. Um, I thought for a minute there that maybe I said your name wrong. It's been Judd. I'm pretty sure I can pronounce that. Most people can, but I have heard I have heard your last name, which I say Legum, said in about 160 different ways.
1: It's not something that's typically pronounced correctly, but you did do it correctly.
0: Thank you. A lot of people say legume
1: as if I'm a Frenchman or something. That's not accurate. But I never will, I never ever correct anyone because I just, it doesn't bother me that much.
0: Yeah, I can kind of relate to that. Hamish is a, a, an unusual name to have in the United States of America. I get a lot of Hamish or Hamish or Hamish. Um, but I don't resent people for messing it up. I just uh, I'm grateful they even try.
1: The blockbuster podcast
0: named after you about a
1: con artist in uh, Australia is going to help them because now everyone's going to know how your name is is pronounced.
0: Yeah, it might make them a little bit more suspicious of my motives, but if that means they get the pronunciation right, then I think it's a win. Net win. Yep. Anyway, the reason I have asked you to join me here on this pop up podcast episode is that you are a machine at growing your audience on Substack. And you do it uh, as well as, or if not better, than um, anyone. And uh, I wanted to help other publishers get a little bit of of an insight into your mind and figure out how they can play this game on substack to grow their audiences as well not only getting as many paid subscribers as they can but also growing their overall mailing list um popular information which you've been doing i think you know you started around about july last year and turned on paid subscriptions i think in october november last year so you're not even a year into doing it as a kind of um money-making enterprise but you're already uh, um, at full-time income equivalent. I don't know how you want to characterize that. I don't want to give away too much if if you're a little bit, um, if you know, if that's too personal to you. But you know, how, how, let's just ask it like this: like, how how are you going with the whole enterprise uh, compared to your expectations when you started?
1: Yeah, I would agree that it's it's a full-time income for me. It's a job. I don't do anything else uh, that generates. Uh, any income whatsoever. I just uh, write my newsletter. Uh, That's all I've done from the beginning. But of course, at the outset, it was a little bit more of a leap of faith. And now it's worked out that way in in a pretty short amount of time. Uh, And my expectations going in, and you know this because we had many conversations as we were you know, I was thinking about doing it and then decided to do it, but hadn't started, and then was just starting. My expectations were, were I had no idea um, how well it was going to go. Uh, one of the things that I was really concerned about was I had no existing email list. Uh, so I had to figure out how to start that and get some momentum there. And I was very, very concerned about the fact that I was going to be writing about politics. The publications that I looked at that were sort of my inspiration um, that were mentioned in that initial Wall Street Journal article about Substack or that includes Substack, I think, in 2017 were um, Bill Bishop's one on China and cynicism and the Stratechery uh, newsletter and I knew, by Ben Thompson. And I knew both of those were topics where people could write them off as business expenses. And also there was a lot of money to be made. Like if you can get some good insights on China for a bunch of people, that's like money in their pocket. You know, they might pick up one thing in five years and that would pay for the subscription costs a hundred times over. Um, And potentially the same thing for technology. I'm sure A lot of those readers are venture capitalists or work in tech or whatever. All they need to do is pick up one insight and it's more than worth it. And I really wasn't going to be providing that because I was just going to be talking about politics. And most people don't make their money in politics. So I was worried that no one would want to pay anything for a political newsletter, especially when there are plenty of political newsletters that are good uh, that are available for free.
0: And political blogs and political, you know, newspapers are obsessed with politics, magazines are obsessed with politics, multiple CNN shows full of uh, pundits uh, stuffed shirts mouthing off about politics. So yeah, it's not like it's not like an uncrowded field. You have to sort of differentiate yourself there.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think one great thing about Bill's newsletter, which is awesome, and I recommend for, for anyone, whether or not you're a, a China expert, is that if you as an American really want to learn about China, I mean, I'm sure there's other places to go, but that's like the place and there's not that many things that are like it, especially something that'll sort of pull, you know, maybe if you read The Economist, you'll get some articles about China, but you won't get the comprehensiveness that
0: that Bill provides. Let me plug here, by the way, that that's cynicism.com, s i n o c-i-s-m.com and i should have mentioned at the top that popular information which is your newsletter judd is at popular.info yeah so just as it sounds like it's spelt it's spelt a
1: great url that you recommended, i purchased
0: ah yes okay yes genius
1: me (laughs) well done yeah but it's very good and i will say the other good thing about it is it's very easy to include in a tweet with just a few characters which is nice, um, as opposed to if I was at popularinformation.com, which I'm not at,
0: um, it would take
1: a lot more characters to type
0: out. Yeah. Let's come let's come back to Twitter. But, yeah, complete that thought about, um, you know, the challenge of differentiation in a, in a crowded market marketplace.
1: Yeah. To be honest, I knew that I could probably – I was hopeful that I could find some – interesting things to write about that other people weren't keen in on, but I was very concerned and worried that no one would want to pay for that. Um, Cause that's what I've been doing for most of my career. And for most of my career, I was always made it available for free. And I didn't know if people would wanna pay for what I would produce in a newsletter. But at the end of the day, Um, you know, with encouragement from the people at Substack and from my wife and from (laughs) some of my friends and other people who I trust, they at least encouraged me to give it a try. So I think my initial expectation was I have no idea if this will work. I'm going to try it for at least a year and then see where I'm at. And worst comes to worst, if it's a total failure, I'll just do something else.
0: And it has not been a total failure, right?
1: No, it has not been a total failure. I think very early on, you know, one of the times it was both the most fun and in some ways the most nerve wracking was that initial, I forget exactly how long it was, but I think it was something on the order of six or seven weeks Where I was writing it, but not even offering a paid version and just trying to build up my free list, you still don't know, you still have no indication if anyone is ever going to pay for it. So that was an interesting time, but it was also an exciting time. But really, shortly after we turned on paid subscriptions, and I got a good percentage of those folks converting right away in that first week or two. You know, by then, um, I was growing more confident that it would work over the long term.
0: Yeah, I will say that there are some things that you can pay attention to during a free period, an introductory period, where you get a sense of whether or not readers will like it, which is a good proxy for the number of people who will ultimately pay. So for instance, if you're getting good open rates, if you're getting uh, lots of feedback from people replying to your newsletters, if people are tweeting about it and sharing about it and suggesting things for you to write, um, then that means, well, it should suggest that people like it, um, which is the first thing you should be trying to do, (laughs) make something that people want. Um, And if you're not getting that kind of feedback, then um, maybe there's something that you need to adjust. What was that period like? for you and what, what kind of indicators were you getting from your audience at, at that stage?
1: I think overall it was positive on the aggregate. Uh, and I do think that there were things I was looking at that was giving me increasing confidence. I think over that period, I was able to build up maybe, maybe 20, I'm not sure if I got to 20,000, maybe around 20,000 free subscribers at that point. And so I was sort of thinking, well, if even a small number of those people will pay, I'll be in okay shape. And also the open rates were fairly strong. Uh, I think we were over 50% in that initial group. Now those are your, and you can see this by the retention rates for your paid subscribers too. Those initial people are your core people. So they really have to like it because those are a good percentage of those people may know you from some other place. You know, you're pulling them in from your Immediate circle of of people who know you, and then maybe one level outside of there. By that point, at that point, because you're not, you don't have much content to pull people in with. Um, so, so I think that was giving me more confidence. I think one of the challenges is you don't have a a lengthy period of time to understand what kinds of content works and what kinds of content can drive new subscribers and what people really respond well to because you don't haven't done it. So I do think there were some additions that while I think they were fine and and good, and maybe I'll even go back and try some things again. I realized that they didn't resonate as well with the audience. And I, you know, sort of set those kinds of things aside.
0: Yeah. I mean, and that's kind of part of it, right? You're not going to hit a home run every time. Um, And there's a, there's an element here of feeling out uh, what can work because a lot of people go into this and they think they want to have a few things lined up in the hopper. So when they get started, there's lots of good stuff to read and they want to be doing things that are immediately resonating with people. But but my advice to people is always kind of, well, don't overthink it. The, the number one thing you should do is just start. Start publishing, see what people are responding to, uh, see what feels right, and then keep writing because you'll settle into your own rhythm and you'll settle into your own voice and you'll figure out what resonates as you work through it. You can't you can't kind of, kind of like science out these things before you start. You just got to start and respond.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's both. I mean, I think it's I think it's good to think a little bit about what you want to do, but I also think that you're not like if I look now at the things that I've done that have worked really well, it wasn't necessarily exactly what I had in mind when I started. In fact, initially when I very first time started, and I think we got in touch because I kind of went in the Substack and started something, you know, kind of half registered for something. And then you saw that I was interested and reached out to me to talk about it further. I was thinking I would do something that was really heavily focused on the 2020 presidential race and the candidates involved. And I have done some of that, but I would say 90% or more of my content is not about, the presidential race or the uh, democratic candidates. It's about other political issues that are going on in mostly in the United States. And so I didn't anticipate ex- that that was the direction I was going to go. But I think what I found is I've had a lot of success exploring different kinds of topics and, and I've just stuck with it.
0: And what do you think it is, back to that question of differentiation, what do you think it is that's different about popular information from all the other political writing out there? Why do people sign up or even pay you to get this stuff?
1: Well, that's something that I've learned um, just by observing the reactions, looking at the open rates, and especially just the responses you get back. One of the really nice things is that people can just click respond to your email and just kind of let you know what they think. Um, and most of those people are very kind, even if they don't like what you wrote that day. It's like opposite Twitter. Yeah, it's like the opposite of Twitter. So that's been great. But, and I think this is something that anyone can think about, is just when I really go to my core strength. So my core strength, and this is something that I've worked on and used before I was in journalism, you know, in law school, and just everything else that I did is the ability to do kind of deep dive research and to do it on a on a quick timeline. And so when I've been able to leverage that skill and then turn it around and put it out in the newsletter and, and help inform people in a deeper way about something they care about, whether that's been, you know, the corporate donations to Cindy Hyde Smith or Steve King, or whether that's been really diving in deep to the election fraud issues in North Carolina or some of the more recent stuff I've done about Facebook ads or the corporate contributions to some of these uh, politicians pushing abortion bans in the United States, that's what the audience really responds to. And so knowing that, I try to look at what's going on in the news and see where is there a topic that I can research further and pull out stuff that's really um, – that's new, that's, that's information that people didn't have. And I think that's what people value and are, and are willing to pay for. And, and I think just as many people are willing to pay because paying is the only way to get four emails a week. But I think for a lot of people, just from what I've heard from my paid subscribers, it's just they really want to support this kind of journalism, and they feel good about it. Uh, When I do that kind of work, Uh, they feel empowered and they feel more informed. And so that's what's motivating them. And that's something I didn't anticipate either. I I thought it was really just the paywall that motivates people and the fact that you would be withholding content. But I, I think for most people, that's not it. I think it's you're producing something that they really value and don't feel other people are doing and they want to be a part of it. Uh, and and becoming a paid subscriber kind of loops them in.
0: And, I mean, to some extent, they get to make that thing exist. That thing that brings value to their life and that direct uh, support, that sense that they are partly responsible for this good thing's existence, makes them feel good. Makes them feel better about their lives too.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I and I talk about this, you know, in my. And if you're on my, my free list, you'll you'll get these. Uh, if you switch over to the paid list, you get none of these types of promotions. But I do talk about, you know, I will do a short intro to my free newsletters about the paid product. And one of the things I say is, you know, there's no advertisements, there's no uh, big donors behind this. It's 100% reader driven. So without the readers, it doesn't exist.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. How, how important was that introductory free period for you? You, you did three months uh, of just everything being free, uh, telling people all the time that you're going to introduce paid subscriptions. But for a while there, everything was free. So um, why did you do that and why was it important?
1: Well, I think it is. it was important for me. Uh, I, I think other people, depending on where you are, you might not have to do it. You know, someone like Bill Bishop, who we mentioned earlier, well, I mean, he did it for seven years. He, yeah, he had a he had a multi year
0: free period. <laughs> yeah,
1: he already had his free thing. But I mean, if you already have an audience who's who's paying you for something and you're just shifting them over, then maybe you don't need to do it. But I really felt like I needed to show people what I was going to do and what the value of it was before I asked them for money, because I don't think it was obvious. Sort of what we were talking about earlier in this conversation was. There is a lot of free political content. So I don't think it's obvious that people want to pay $6 a month or $50 a year for something else about politics. But I thought that if I could get people in the door and um, show them what I could do with their support, that maybe people would go for it. And I think that's what – largely what happened because I still – that's still been my best little – you know, two week period was right when I turned on the, the paid subscriptions and, and the people who had been receiving it during that free period were given an opportunity to to switch over. I also think that, you know, and we can talk about this more if you want to talk about, you know, kind of how to build up your free list, that the free content is what drives list, list growth. Because that's what really is. I mean, you can have – there are links that Substack generates for your paid content, but they're paywalled off so people can't read them. So it's the content that anyone can read that basically will convince them to sign up for your list. So I wrote a, a piece that was one of my free pieces because it came out on Mondays. this Monday that was about – that went through in detail of all of the um, – or the corporate donations from six companies to uh, – whole a specific set of politicians who are responsible for these abortion bans and that got read by lots and lots of people and a good number of those people several thousand decided that they would sign up for the free list and that's great for me uh, because now they're now they'll get the next free edition and hopefully in however long it takes they may want to they may want to become a paid subscriber but it was really that free, addition on Monday that helped drive a lot of this recent free list growth for me. And so in the beginning, it's great to just be able to do that every time you put out a newsletter and not have anything that the paid newsletter actually can, um, you know, it, it's not necessarily going to help you grow, grow your, grow your free list.
0: That's right. We, we kind of uh, position, the free stuff that you do is like the best marketing for your overall writing business. So the free stuff puts out into the world the best demonstration of your voice and your worldview and the quality of your thought, which is kind of what people are subscribing to. They're not really subscribing just to get stuff and content. They're subscribing to have this relationship with a writer who they love and trust. And so every time you publish something that demonstrates well your quality of thought and your voice and your worldview, you give people an opportunity to, to fall in love. And, um, over time, they might just decide, decide to translate that love into money and pay you to become a paying subscriber, to because they want to hear from you more. They get delighted by seeing your name appear in their inbox.
1: Yeah, and I still think ultimately, if you think of it from a business perspective, because this is a little business that you start when you do a news. It's a newsletter, but it's also a business. That the free content is by far the most important content for your business. Because one, it's something that anyone um, can read and it can help grow your free list. And two, it's what gets sent to your total list and gives you an opportunity to convert people. And so that is why I generally send out my free, I do four a week and generally one is sent out for free and three are for paid subscribers only. Sometimes I'll do an extra one for free during the week if I feel like I have something that I want to send to everyone. But the reason why I do it on Mondays is because that's the one that I have the most time to put work into. So I want my absolute best work to go
0: out on that day, basically. That's awesome.
1: Which seems a little bit counterintuitive, but – I think that's what really makes sense, and I know you actually helped me get in touch with with Ben Thompson from Stratechery, and I know that he thinks about it the same way. It's really that the free pieces that he writes, and I think he does the same thing, one a week free, those are his huge kind of opuses on whatever he's writing about, Facebook's new strategy, and the subscriber-only stuff is really more kind of daily more ephemeral pieces that are, are interesting on that day and that people will value and read, but aren't necessarily these big kind of tentpole pieces that represent the full
0: capacity of what you can offer. Exactly. They're, they're kind of more like quick takes. They're sort of more of a, a a conversation for insiders where you're you're writing for your intimates, the people who have already been converted to to your religion. And in that case, you don't have to explain as much You don't have to uh, be as polished. People will be more forgiving, but they also kind of like the sense of rawness where they're getting what they feel is uh, a direct feed from your brain almost.
1: Yeah, and I think there's some times when that's really, really great. Like for instance, if I'm going to do, and I think I did this, I don't know, but like, I think I did do this, but if I'm going to do an analysis of Bill Barr's testimony to Congress, and he's testifying on a Tuesday, and I'm going to do it on a Wednesday, I can get it out for you at 6.30 a.m. or 7 a.m. on Wednesday morning and have it be pretty in-depth and uh, expansive. It's not going to be like a huge research project like I might be able to put out on a Monday, but it still might be the the very thing you want to read that morning because it's fresh. So it's not necessarily an inferior product, but it's a different kind of product, or it can be.
0: Yeah, I think that's an important distinction. To to think of of the the free posts as being almost separate from your subscriber-only stuff, a separate product. The free stuff is there to be uh, more accessible and to kind of demonstrate the full extent of your capabilities. And then the paid stuff is like a different publication almost, where you're speaking to your intimates and maintaining this ongoing relationship. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm kind of thinking out loud. <laughs> so, but um, that that's, that reinforces the advice that we continue to give, and we see um, reflected from publication to publication on Substack. And the reason I hammer on this point so much is because it is counterintuitive. Most writers who we talk to, their instinct is to put their best stuff behind the paywall because they want to deliver these. Uh, you know, quote unquote, rewards for subscribing. But the reward for subscribing is not the stuff. It's the sense of relationship, the sense of intimacy and getting access to that person who you like.
1: Yeah, and, and I mentioned this to you and I'll, I'll, I'll say it even though maybe it's not the best thing to say on a, on a podcast hosted by a newsletter company. But I think intuitively, most people do not want more email. So if the only thing you have to offer them is, hey, subscribe to this newsletter and you'll get some more email, that's not that compelling. But if you can create a different value proposition where you can say, look, I'm doing the kind of work here, I'm, I'm, creating the, I'm doing the kind of reporting, I'm creating the kind of writing that you can't find anywhere else, and I need you to be a part of this and to support this work if you value it, then I think that people – get into that and they want to get it four times a week, but it's not necessarily the idea of getting it four times a week. That is going to be the motivating factor.
0: That's absolutely right. It's the value, not the abundance that matters. Yeah. I want to try and keep this tight, but um, we're we're closing in on 30 minutes. We can go a bit longer, but I definitely want to talk to you about Twitter because you are a master user of Twitter. You have an advantage over most people in that you've got 350,000 people, which is a huge base following you on Twitter. But um, there are some fundamentals that you apply in using Twitter that can help even if you've got a small following on Twitter, I think. So how important is Twitter to your Substack growth? And um, what do you think is the best way to use it for that purpose?
1: I would say it's very important. It's certainly the most important referral source that I have. Um, I don't know the exact percentage of subscribers who first came on Twitter, but I think it's probably approaches 50% of my paid subscribers. And the way I use it is I use it to give people essentially like a a thesis statement of what the newsletter is about that day um, and I'll do that in a in a thread of tweets it might be five to 15 tweets uh, where I kind of lay out my my main points or the things that I've learned and then I try to use that to build up to a period where in one of those tweets not the first tweet and not the last tweet but somewhere in there there's a Organic place where I can ask people to sign up for the newsletter, um, and that that's the best way to get the information. So I, I think it's good to get the information around the the newsletter that I wrote on Monday that I talked about a couple of times about the corporate contributions to um, the Alabama politicians. You know that thread was retweeted last time I checked like eleven thousand times. So that really got around because a lot of the information that was in the newsletter ended up being in there and that's fine. Cause it's a, it was also a free issue too. So it's, it's no problem. It can be on Twitter. It can be on Substack or it can be wherever. And that can really help. You know, you just need to get your name and your website in front of as many people as you can. And, and Twitter is um, a great way to do that. I think that if you don't have a huge following to begin with, you can still be successful and one of the ways to do that is to reach out directly to people and tell them about what you've written, if you do it in a thoughtful way. So you've got to think about what your topic is, what you've discovered, what you've written about, and think about who who does have a large audience on Twitter might be interested in that and send them a nice, polite note about that thing. Um, and that's still something I I do on a targeted basis, even though I do have a pretty good Following because there's people with with even bigger followings and there's also people with smaller followings, but they have really engaged followings that you want to get your information in front of. You know, not just the drive subscriptions, but you just want more, you know, anyone, every writer wants people to read their work uh, that I've met at least. And so I think that that's, that's the number one thing that people, I think, who aren't successful at this I think it's probably the the easiest mistake is just to think that oh I'm just going to write and kind of put it out there and this we'll just sort of like see what happens like I can tell you nothing will happen you've got to you've got to really work on it and basically if you're running I mean if you're doing it as a free newsletter and it's just for whoever's interested then that's fine just do it and people will read it who read it and that's fine and you may not care how many people read it uh, but if you're trying to to Earn a living doing it. You've got, I like, got to work on it. And in addition to your job of writing the newsletter, you have another job, which is you're the you're the marketing officer for your for your company. You're the uh, is that a thing, chief marketing officer? I'm not sure.
0: You're the chief hype man. Yeah, you're yeah.
1: the you're the promo king or promo queen. You've got to get that out. So a lot of times, I'll keep. Uh, I don't have one going now, but in different periods of times. During this nine months or however I've been long I've been working on this now, I'll just put together a spreadsheet of like here's all the people I want to reach out to, about my newsletter or about a specific edition of my newsletter, um, just to let people know. And and I found that if you're thoughtful about it, people people react well.
0: You know, you're not spamming people with it. Yeah, what does what does thoughtful mean? Like, what's an approach to one of those people look like? How do you do that without coming across as thirsty or? Um...
1: You want to think about their interests. So if you're writing about, you know, for for example, I know that there was a reporter who had been interested in some of my work previously, who writes about food policy. So when I did this newsletter on monday about the corporate donations i didn't send her in an email or i think I sent her a dm just saying hey here's my newsletter i said hey i wanted you to see this and i wanted you to note that one of the companies that i've highlighted here is coca-cola which is a food company so i thought you'd be interested in that because i know that's your beat and i think that kind of thing where you it's clear that you've tailored it to that person and you know what their interests are and you're sending it to them because you think this aligns with their interests. That I think is an appeal that's likely to be seen favorably um, or a message that's likely to be received favorably as opposed to, Hey, check out this thing I just wrote and leave it there.
0: Right. What do you think of the advantages of doing Twitter threads rather than just doing one-off tweets? Uh,
1: I think there's a lot of advantages. Um, One, it's just more space in people's feeds. Uh, Social media is just a kind of a brawl for people's attention. And it's basically like sending eight or nine people into the ring uh, versus one person into the ring to see what they can do. Um, So that's an advantage. I think you have a better chance of capturing what's interesting about your newsletter in a thread than you do in a single tweet. And I think that just as a matter of Twitter strategy, I know that creating a popular thread is something that is likely to get you new Twitter followers, whereas just an individual popular tweet is not. And I think that's because a thread indicates that you you can indicate that you are, you know, a person, a thoughtful person who that person wants to hear further thoughts from.
0: You're a serious person of expansive thought. It must span at least five tweets.
1: Yes. Um, Whereas I don't think, you know, you can, it's funny. Sometimes this happens and and you can check this. Like sometimes if you see a tweet that's going like super viral, it has like a hundred thousand retweets or 50,000 retweets. Check to see like the original author, and a lot of times they'll still have like 300 followers because people really don't follow people based on seeing an individual tweet.
0: How thoughtful are you about writing out those Twitter threads? Do you spend hours laboring over these things in a, in a Google doc and then paste them over and bit by bit? Like, how, What's your process like there?
1: I, I do it in different ways. Sometimes I'll just write it out on my phone. You know, A lot of times the threads, we're, we're sort of getting deep into my mind here. But sometimes... Sometimes the, the 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 train of thought. I think there's a difference between what I write in my newsletter and what a thread will be, and I and I kind of feel what a good Twitter thread might be. And sometimes it just kind of pops into my head, and I'll just put it right out in my phone, and that'll be that. Um, I generally do it a, a couple hours after the newsletter goes out because I feel like more people are on Twitter then. But then sometimes I'll know that the the word the space constraint and just the way that. I'm going to have to express this information is going to be complicated or there's there's a lot of complexities that are going to be difficult to simplify. And I'm a little bit unsure about how to do it. And then I'll I'll basically do it in advance, like in a Google document and with like a word counter and making sure that each one is is 240 characters or less and kind of massaging it a little more when I feel like there's more work to do. Um, and I don't have
0: a clear sense of it. So I'll do it I'll do it both ways. Got it. And when you're linking to your newsletter there, um, sometimes you're writing about your story and you'll link to your story, but other times you're doing general promotions about your newsletter and you're putting in the link to your homepage. Why, why do you do that?
1: I guess it just depends on what that tweet is about. If the tweet is about why you should subscribe, then I just do it to my homepage um, because I feel like that's clearer a clear and also i'll I'll tell you another thing that the way the way Substack works now if you click on an individual article and you you do get an appeal to join the free list but there's also a link that says let me read it first so if i were to just do that I think most people just click the let me read it first. I would click the let me read it first. But so if I'm doing an appeal to subscribe and I just do a direct to my website, it does not have that. And so I'm going to get more subscribers by doing a direct link.
0: Yeah. And actually, you might have a slightly different setup to most people. Most people on Substack, if you link to the article, you don't get presented with a splash page where there's a sign up box. There's a button you can click that says subscribe. That was a special request that I made. You made a special request, and we yeah. were we were willing to make accommodations for you in particular. Yeah. But yeah, I think I think that's a point, a, a distinction I wanted to make because when you send people to an article, naturally they want to read the article. Um, that's what that's the job they've gone there to do, and they're not necessarily going somewhere to sign up. Some people will read the article, love it, and think, "Oh, I've got to be on this mailing list." But that's a much harder job, and it's understandable because that's just the way normal people operate. But if you really want to get the email address from someone, which uh, should be your goal a lot of the time, then linking directly to your homepage is probably a smart idea because that gives them a very clear place to sign up and that they go there with the intent of signing up. So you want to make it as easy as possible for them.
1: Yeah, I will say that I think the most important thing to keep in mind is not the necessity of just promoting your website because that is a necessity, but it's very easy to do. Anyone can tweet a link to their website, but you have to come up with a value proposition for why people should do it. Um, and, you know, I think the the shortest way to explain the value proposition that works best for me is that you should do it to receive and support accountability journalism. And variations of that message is what works for me. But no matter who you are, I think you have to, you have to be able to succinctly Describe the value proposition. If you don't have that, it really is not going to matter how much you promote your website because you haven't given people a reason to do it. I think, you know, Bill Bishops is get smarter about China. And I think everyone who is successful, you know, has that. Maybe in some cases it's less explicit, but it's always there.
0: That's right. I think that's a good message to end on actually because. What you're selling here is is not stuff not content it's uh it's value and for some people that's uh the value they find in having this relationship with the the trusted source the trusted kind of advisor a person whose voice and worldview they love and want to get more of and in the case of popular information it's also about uh, being partly responsible for making this good thing exist this thing that the world needs more of um, in this case, accountability journalism. So thanks very much for taking the time, Jud. It's popular.info, by the way. Uh, any closing thoughts? Well, I would just say that I've been brought out here as the
1: uh, as the expert on, on building your list, but I think I, I do think that a lot of the reason why this has worked out is that, you guys have a really good platform and you you generally have pretty good advice. And so I'd recommend listening to your advisors at Substack uh, as well. Even if you're not going to listen to them, I'd recommend thinking about what they say pretty seriously because I think at this point you've been doing it for a while
0: and I think it works. That's very generous of you, Judd. Thanks very much. And thank you for publishing with Substack. The ride with you has been awesome and we're really proud to have Popular Information publishing on uh, on our platform.
1: I look forward to to many years to come.
0: Me too. Okay. Have a great day.
1: Great. Thanks.